According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in uh, Matthew 22 once again, as well as Mark 12 and Luke 20. I believe we'll use um, Matthew as our primary text. Although there is... uh, We'll be in Luke 20 for at least one of the points as we continue this study. Let's go ahead and go to Luke, Luke chapter 20. It is the longest of the three accounts. We're in the midst of episode 7, the Sadducees question the resurrection. We started this last week, and I expect we can wrap it up today. Uh, this, you recall, is uh, the, the ludicrous hypothetical story that the Sadducees threw at him uh, in a way to try to disprove that there could be any kind of resurrection whatsoever. And uh, they invent this hypothetical story of, well, what happens if this woman was widowed and didn't have a son? Uh, the requirement under Mosaic law is that the brother has to raise up a son uh, in the name of the deceased brother. And so... Um, you know, that's normal, that's natural, it happened. In fact, we have records of it happening. And many of the uh, um, reconciliations between Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy, for example, in the line of Christ, uh, have some leveret marriage uh, understandings in order to um, reconcile uh, people that have different fathers' names. How do they have different fathers' names? Well, one is the legal father, and then one is the actual birth father, given that a, a younger brother was uh, was involved there. So and we're, we're familiar with the process of leveret marriage, and we went through the passage in Deuteronomy last week uh, to deal with this. Well, their hypothetical was, well, what happens if if this happens more than once, or, you know, twice, three times, four times, seven times? In the story that they make up, then uh, in their view, you know, she had seven husbands on earth. When she gets to heaven, uh, you know, whose wife is she going to be in heaven? How's that going to work? So uh, anyway, it's just their way of throwing out there a ludicrous question. And and is this not something we see all the time anyway? Don't we see the hostility of a darkened mind when when skeptics say, well, can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? You know, and they think that this is just the the essence of genius on their part because they, <laughs> you know, they've come up with this conundrum. They say, well, there's no answer to that. You know, if he, that he's not omnipotent because he can't make a rock so big he can't lift it kind of thing. And, and it, it's just using the folly of their own insanity to try to disprove the, the wisdom of Almighty God. And that's, uh, I guess that's a whole other conversation in it. So, in Luke 20 and verse 27, there came to him some of the Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection. And uh, they questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us, If a man's brother dies having a wife and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. And we went through, and yes, that is the law, and that is expected. Now, there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died childless, and the second... And uh, the third married her, and in the same way, all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also. But what a sad story. (laughs) All right, in the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be for all seven and married her? I actually believe that they have made the story worse than it needs to be um, just to make their, ask their, their question and get their answers. And Jesus says, well, you know, you're wrong. You don't understand. Neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And there's, uh, I think there's more doctrine we can build out of that. But um, I have not yet satisfied in my own mind how knowing the power of God would have related in an Old Testament context. So I'm going to kind of let that go for now. Um, but in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? She won't be anybody's wife. There is no marriage in the resurrection. That the resurrected realm of existence, the eternal realm of existence, is not a marital state. It is a non-marital state. It is a non-procreative state for us uh, in, in the resurrection of glory as we understand it. So we'll, uh, we'll detail this. I haven't prayed yet, have I? Let's pray. <laughs> let's start our class. This is a long introduction. Let's pray. Let's start our class. And let's get right back into it here today. Shall we pray?
Thank you, Father, for this day one more time, the opportunity we have to assemble together and to study your truth. And we thank you for this passage of Scripture. And there's so much to glean out of this. I just pray that we would have uh, your blessing upon our time and that we would uh, have a greater appreciation for uh, the impact of what our Savior was saying, that, uh, that they knew neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And, Father, I pray that we would know both. And uh, as Paul said himself in Philippians, Father, we want to know the Scriptures but uh, we would hate to uh, know the scriptures and not know the power of God. So teach us, Father, what these are about, that we can have uh, we can have both in our equipping for our work of service. And I thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. As I said, I think there's more. They made this more complicated than it needed to be. You know, ultimately, any multiple marriage, you know, whether through divorce or death or anything, uh, you would then be left with a, a situation. Well, then, you know whose husband are you or whose wife are you in heaven? Is it just simply the last one on earth is the one you're, you're stuck with forever? How does it, <laughs> how does it work? You know? Um, and so the, clearly the Lord's answer here is, uh, is valid that there is no marriage in heaven. It's a non-marital state, but what's not explored in this passage. And what I want to know, uh, how does it work? Let's say, okay. Uh, let's say with the third husband, right? Because the second husband was expected to to have a child in the name of the first husband to carry on that name. Well, what about his name now for husband number two? How's his name going to get perpetuated? See, so does husband number three actually have to have two babies with this woman? One for the to carry on the name of, of brother number one and then a second baby to carry on the name of brother number two. And then he's got to have a baby of his own to carry on his name. See. And so I'm, I'm starting to wonder, and next time maybe I'm, I'm in the same room with Arnold Fruchtenbaum, I'll ask him this. Uh, is it actually, isn't it actually the case that this, this, this poor guy, husband number seven, actually has to have six boys, six children, to carry on the name of those brothers? And then he can get around to having a child of his own, right? Which I suspect will probably come from his own wife rather than this lever at marriage. So... Um, However, all this works, uh, I suspect this poor woman, the good thing she died because she would have had to have seven babies. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, however that works. Well, in the outline, uh, the Sadducees presented their fantasy hypothetical, their fantasy hypothetical as proof that there could be no resurrection from the dead. Uh, and we get this all the time. I, I, I'm sometimes thwarted, you know, the. People don't like the gospel message and that if you don't place your faith in Christ, you die and go to hell. And they say, well, what about the pygmy in a remote village in Africa that never saw a white man or never, never heard the gospel kind of a thing? And so they create this, what I call this fantasy hypothetical. Okay? Don't get me wrong. There are pygmies in very remote places, you know, or ab- aboriginal Australians and so forth. Um, but I do believe that God is absolutely fair. And that every of the elect, everyone that's, that will believe in Christ, will be placed in a circumstance where they will hear the gospel. See? And that uh, for the folks who will never believe in Christ, no matter what, uh, why not have them born there? <laughs> you know, where that, where that circumstance is going to be. And for those who are going to be saved, they can be brought out of the jungle. They can be brought to places. One of my best friends in the whole world was carried through the jungle as an infant uh, and brought to missionaries in Indonesia. And those missionaries brought him to the America where he got adopted and, and adopted into a Christian home and accepted the gospel. He's a believer today. Well, so God knows how to get someone out of a jungle into a place where a gospel message can be can be presented. And as I said, there's no reason to assume that God in his wisdom did not select the country of our birth and the, the time frame of our birth and so forth. So all the Native Americans before uh, before Christianity reached the Western Hemisphere, was God unfair to them? You understand. No, God is never unfair in any gospel uh, opportunity. So anyway, there's that's a whole other series of lessons right there that I don't want to really get into today. But it does illustrate how we will encounter what I call the fantasy hypothetical. Uh, and it's just simply uh, an unreasonable dilemma that's posed by a mind that doesn't want to believe the truth anyway. And so they create these hostile um, scenarios. 
And so I call it the fantasy hypothetical. So the Sadducees presented their fantasy hypothetical as proof there could be no resurrection from the, from the dead. And rather than prove their case, they, uh, they fail miserably. Um, under subpoint A, we looked at Deuteronomy 25 and saw the Mosaic Law of Procedure for leveret marriage. Remember, leveret comes from, it's a Latin term that comes, it's a theological reference here to the uh, uncle. The book of Genesis uh, has a terrible example. That's in Genesis 38, the story of uh, Tamar and uh, Judah's sons involved in that. And then uh, under point C, the book of Ruth has the beautiful example of how this worked in Ruth 4, verses 1 through 15. And in that example, there was actually a kinsman with a closer relationship than Boaz. And and Boaz had to defer to that kinsman uh, to give him the opportunity of redemption before he would be eligible. And these are the things we want to understand when it comes to the kinsman redeemer is that, first of all, you have to be a near kinsman uh, or you're not eligible, you're not qualified. And then secondly, you must be willing. You must be willing to pay the redemption price if assuming, of course, that you are able to pay the redemption price. And these are the elements of the kinsman redeemer doctrine that apply to Christ and his role in redeeming us, that he has to, first of all, be a kinsman. He has to be uh, identified with us. He had to assume the human body that he assumed, the human nature and then the human body. Uh, through the virgin birth. Otherwise, he's not a kinsman. Okay? He couldn't just show up as the angel of the Lord like he did all those times in the Old Testament and provide our redemption. He had to be truly human, not only in a human nature, but also in the human body. He has to be able to pay the price, sinless and perfect, and then he has to be willing to pay the price, uh, submitting to the will of the Father and voluntarily becoming our substitute. So you teach the whole gospel message in the doctrine of the kinsman redeemer there in the book of Ruth is the uh, the greatest way to uh, to do that. Now, um, I expect that this, the remainder of our outline is not going to take um, our whole hour today. So we have a few minutes. I want to share with you uh, something out of Jewish legend that is debated as far as whether this was in the mind of the Sadducees and so forth. Did they have, did they know about this story? I believe they must have known about this story. Uh, but in some of the Jewish legends, they had a story, and it's, in, it's an apocryphal book called Tobit. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not, but let's just read Tobit chapter 3. And uh, unless you have a Catholic Bible, uh, or unless you have an old 1611 King James with the Apocrypha, uh, or a uh, um, n- uh, new revised standard version today is pretty much the only modern text that carries the Apocrypha. Uh, then I, I don't suspect anyone in the room actually has a book of Tobit with them. So I'll read it for you. Um, Tobit chapter 3. Um, Tobit, this is not Bible. Okay, let me, let me be very clear. This is not Bible. Uh, but it is among the... Older Jewish legends, it was uh, probably um, in between the Old Testament and New Testament in its time frame uh, of, of when it was being written. It uh, purports to be the story of a godly man from the tribe of Naphtali, I think, who was carried off to Nineveh. He was carried off to, um, to live by the Assyrians. And uh, I can't read the whole thing. But you'll see the introduction here to Tobit in chapter 1. The book of the words of Tobit, son of Tobiel, the son of Ananiel, the son of Adul, the son of Gabiel, the son of Asael, of the tribe of Naphtali. There we go. Who in the time of uh, Enemesser, king of the Assyrians, was led captive out of Thisbe, which is at the right hand of that city, which is called properly Naphtali, in Galilee above Asser. I, Tobit, have walked all the days of my life in the way of truth and justice. And I did many alms deeds to my brethren and my nation who came with me to Nineveh. So it, it sets the stage by introducing this believer from the tribe of Naphtali who it, it makes a very good point in trying to say he's a godly man, not like the rest of those wicked Naphtaliites, right? Because the ten northern tribes are pretty, pretty awful. And so they get swept away into captivity and he's swept away into captivity. And it's a story of him and his wife and his son Tobit or his son uh, Tobias. 
All right. And we'll skip through these chapters. Um, he's got some undeserved suffering, though, and Tobit is actually blinded, and he's going to need his prayers answered. And uh, some of those happen in, in the first two chapters. Then there's another story that's introduced here in chapter 3. And this is where I want to pick up the reading. After all of his prayers... Then it came to pass the same day in Ekbatan, which is today a city in Iran, a city of Media, Sarah, the daughter of Ragul, was also reproached by her father's maids. Now, Ragul is Tobit's brother, so Sarah would be a niece uh, and so forth. Um, Reproached by her father's maids because uh, that she had been married to seven husbands Uh, whom Asmodeus, the evil spirit, had killed before they had lain with her. And so this was part of the legend. And and whether or not this was in the Sadducees' mind, whether they were playing off of this story to create their story, it's hard to say because they don't believe in demons either. They don't believe in angels or fallen angels. And so uh, the story of this, uh, maybe they adapted it for their purpose because they they certainly didn't believe in Asmodeus. Um. In any event, so here's the story. Uh, Asmodeus uh, is possessing this woman. Uh, He's in love with her or he's in lust with her kind of a thing, uh, like the fallen angels that produce Nephilim. And so every time she got married, uh, he would seize her body and and murder the the groom, okay, Uh, on their wedding night before they consummated their, their marriage. And so uh, not to, you know, risk her being impregnated on the wedding night and actually um, anything like that. So um, she's being rebuked here because uh, she's seven times widowed. And the maids of her father are calling her accursed and saying, you know, dost thou not know that they thou hast strangled thine husbands? Thou hast had already seven husbands. Uh, neither was thou named after any of them. And uh, different uh, things of conflict here. So this is this is one of the legends, and it's going to have a, this really is a science fiction type story before its time. Okay, um, there's going to be a, a glorious deliverance here. So she starts praying, and um, interestingly enough, when you start here with ver- with this prayer in verse 11, she prayed toward the window and said, "Blessed art thou, O Lord, my God." And thine holy and glorious name is blessed and honorable forever. Let all thy works praise thee forever. And now, O Lord, I set my eyes and face towards thee and say, Take me out of the earth that I may hear no more thy reproach. So she's going to die like the Sadducees say, but she wants to die. She wants to have this reproach lift and all the accusations of being a murderer. You know that I'm pure from all sin with man, that I've never polluted my name or the name of my father in the land of my captivity. I'm the only daughter of my father, neither hath he any child to be his heir, neither any near kinsman, nor any son of his alive. And so all these things. But you'll notice the issue is the inheritance and the the heirs that that are not in existence. Anyway, so uh, Ragul's prayers are heard, Tobit's prayers are heard, her prayers are heard, and uh, Raphael, the uh, supposed archangel, is going to be sent to heal them both, going to be sent to heal Tobit's blindness, and to uh, provide for Sarah to finally have a successful marriage and uh, so forth. So that's kind of the story there. I won't read the rest of it or waste your time on the rest of it, but it is kind of a swashbuckler. It's a little bit of an adventure. Um, Raphael will provide some uh, skill, um, uh, a mechanism by which uh, Tobias uh, can kill Asmodeus on the wedding night so that uh, he doesn't end up dying. And um, some interesting things there. I'm not going to read through a whole lot more. It's, it even details how that battle takes place and how they mix this uh, concoction, this potion. And um, one of the prayers that's given on their wedding night is actually adapted in Catholic wedding services. Um, some of the verses, if I can spot them here. 
You might even recognize him if you've attended a Catholic wedding at any point. Yeah, I'm not going to spot it. That's all right. I'm a little rusty on my Apocrypha, which is, which is fine. Um, but there it is. And so whether or not this uh, Apocryphal book was part of their thinking um, could have been, or maybe it just gave them the idea, because obviously they don't believe in demons or angels and things like that. Um, it's hard to say. But the whole, the whole idea being that uh, you create this ludicrous example to prove your point. And what have you done? You know, what does that say about your, is that, is that how God uses scripture? Is that how God would, would uh, explore uh, a possibility? No. And we're going to see that here with the Lord. The Lord is going to take them back to Exodus and he's going to show them scripture. And from a, a single phrase, he's going to draw a conclusion, but it's not, it's not using the logic of, of insanity to try to come to a rational conclusion. He's going to actually use scripture and he's going to use it rationally. And that's what I want to take the time to explore here today. So let's, let's get to that. Um, under point two, Jesus rejects the premise of the question uh, that they fail to understand Scripture and they fail to understand the power of God. And, uh, and I appreciate this. This is a methodology. If we're going to be types of Christ, if we're going to be imitators of Christ, then I believe we ought to imitate uh, his approach to the Scriptures. We, we imitate his hermeneutic. We imitate his um, reverence for what God says in the Word. And uh, since he rejects the premise of their question, I think we can likewise. Uh, if, if the skeptic's going to throw something out there, then just stop him and say, no, I'm not even, I, I dismissed even the basis of your question. And uh, don't even take it from there. Uh, so subpoint A, failure to understand the Scriptures. And uh, recognizing that their, one of their biggest flaws was that they only accepted the supremacy of the Pentateuch. Uh, that uh, they, they were fixated upon it. They would not accept the Psalms. They would not accept uh, the uh, other realms of Scripture, the, the prophets, for example. And that's not how God designed the Scriptures to be understood. He designed the Scriptures to understand from Genesis to Revelation, the whole counsel of God's Word, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, you know, and, and uh, which, of course, is our approach to Scripture, and I can appreciate that. But if you're fixated on one particular verse and you fail to bring in everything that God says about a particular subject, then you're going to have a warped view. That's just not how he designed the scriptures. Okay. I mean, think about if I was going to limit my doctrine of marriage to uh, that one chapter in the book of Judges where they they ambush the you know, the wives in this one venue to try to get wives for the tribe of Benjamin, you know. And my, my doctrine of marriage would then be just, uh, you know, organize an ambush somewhere and abduct whatever women you want and, and you, you run off with them and then there you go. That's how you get a wife, okay? Well, I think that would be, uh, I think, we all agree that that would be a flawed approach because we would be ignoring all the other passages in the Bible that pertain to marriage, okay? And this is sadly... I'm using a silly example to, to make it clear, but sadly, a lot of believers do what I'm talking about. They camp. They find one pet verse, and they camp on it, and they camp on it, and they camp on it, as if other verses don't exist because they don't want to modify what they understand on this one verse they're, they're, they're camping on or they're harping on. No, we understand from 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. So you've got to take in the whole counsel of God's Word, which is Acts 20, verses 20 and 27. And uh, you've got to use the methodology of uh, here a little, there a little, line by line, precept by precept, as per Isaiah 28, verses 10 and 13. And it's not, it's not, uh, it's not glamorous, okay? It's not trendy. It's, it's uh, oftentimes it's, it's tedious, it's long, it's hard, it's, it's the rest of your life in the scriptures, a little bit here, a little bit there, but that's what he designed it to be. And so we can be thankful for that. Beyond that, failure to understand the power of God. How can you have so much scripture knowledge and so much divine ignorance, right? What did the Lord tell the Pharisees? He said, you search the scriptures thinking that in them you have salvation, but it is the scriptures that testify about me. How is it they can have, they can have so much Bible knowledge and not recognize Christ? Okay? Or believers today can accumulate factual gnosis 
But uh, what are we told? Knowledge puffs up and love edifies. They don't have an understanding of God. They don't know him in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. Okay? And I believe that we in the church age have an orientation to the power of God unlike any previous dispensation. Abraham had no scriptures, but he understood the power of God. What books of the Bible did Abraham have in his day? None. Zero. But he understood the power of God. And so when God said, you'll have a son, he laughed and said, oh, this is going to be good. Can't wait to see how this works. He laughed in faith. Sarah laughed apart from faith. Okay. Um, he sacrificed Isaac again in faith. What Bible verses did he have? But he understood the power of God. Okay. Now, he didn't understand the power of God and the power of his resurrection. That's, that's for us in the newness of life in the church age. But he understood the power of God and perhaps in the power of creation or in the power of something. Okay, fellowship of his sufferings. So he understood the power of God. Thirdly, the resurrection existence for humanity will be like the present existence for angelity. And this is where we ran out of time discussing the fact that uh, the Sadducees didn't believe in angels either. And, and I find this neat that the Lord used something else they didn't believe in as part of his evidence um, Jesus used an illustration from another doctrinal blindness to answer the doctrinal blindness under consideration. And uh, some people would say, well, that's a bad idea. If they don't accept this, then why are you using that as evidence for something else they don't accept? Well, you, you can dispute whether you think it's effective or not, but it's the method that Jesus used. And I think it's, it's a wonderful illustration because my idea is that he's expanding exactly how ignorant they are saying you don't understand the scriptures not only on this area but in angels and there's a lot you don't understand okay and if perhaps you can show somebody not only that they're ignorant but that they're vastly ignorant <laughs> maybe you can orient them to the fact that man there's a lot to learn i don't know anything there's a whole lot of bible i don't know much about i better i probably ought to be in a church somewhere i probably ought to be under bible study okay and so this could be a methodology we might employ to uh, in, in a number of conversations. You understand humans don't become angels. This is some point B under main point three. Humans don't become angels. Um, a couple of the church fathers wrote in some ways thinking that maybe we turn into angels when we die. That's not what happens. That violates the whole tenor of Scripture. talk about that you can't be like the angels if you are an angel okay uh, so he says we will be like the angels matthew and mark use hosts angeloi like or as the angels luke even coins a term is angeloi so uh, you can't be like angels if you are an angel the resurrected state for humanity will be an eternal non-marital non-procreative estate Remembering, of course, that marriage is a picture. Marriage is, is uh, going to give way to the greater marriage for us as the bride of Christ. Now, for Israel, they're not bride of Christ, but they still don't have a marital estate. Uh, the work assignment to image God is complete when, when, uh, in, the, in the resurrected estate. So there's other things that, that apply there as well. Non-marital, non-procreative state. That's the resurrected state for humanity. Okay? All right, let's get finally to Jesus' exegesis. We want to use his hermeneutics, and we want to use his exegesis. Here we have his exegesis. Um, verse 37 of Luke 20. After he lets them know about the resurrected estate, it's neither marital nor procreative, then... Um, Verse 37, that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, we'll look at that. We're going to turn back and we're going to see this in different applications. But uh, he's focusing on the present tense of this title. The God of Abraham, the God of uh, Isaac, the God of Jacob. It's actually three different titles that oftentimes we combine um, in later scriptures. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live 
to him. And uh, some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. What he's making, he's making an exegetical observation from the text. He's exegeting the text, giving them the exegesis, giving them the significance of the present tense of being presently the God of Abraham, being presently the God of Isaac, being presently the God of Jacob. Not that he used to be. He is. This is his present, ongoing, and eternal title. So let's uh, turn back to Exodus 3 while we look at subpoint A. Yahweh called to Moses from the burning bush. Or Jehovah, if you'd rather pronounce the uh, tetragrammaton as Jehovah or Yahweh, however you want to pronounce that. The Lord. And the Hebrew is just Y-H-W-H. And he calls to Moses from the burning bush. This is his most holy name. This is his personal name. The basis of which is the I am that gets revealed to Moses as well. But Exodus 3, 6. Um, Exodus chapter 3. Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He led, there's a Gentile priest there, by the way, who has an orientation to Yahweh. He led the flock to the west side of the wilderness, came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So here's the Malach Yahweh, the angel of Yahweh, the angel of Jehovah. And Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. So when Yahweh saw that he turned aside. So we have... This is not unique either, by the way. A lot of places will we'll have the angel of the Lord and the Lord. And they're used interchangeably. They're used in, a, in apposition to one another. It's the reference to the same uh, being as the second member of Trinity. It's Jesus Christ and his pre-incarnation uh, uh, appearances. So when Yahweh saw that he turned aside to look, God called him, I think it's Elohim, called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, he said, here I am. And so he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place in which you're standing is holy ground. He said also, notice now, I am. Okay, I am. Present tense. Now, presently, and eternally. The God of your father. The God of Abraham. The God of Isaac. And the God of Jacob. Now, how long have these guys been dead? Okay. When we come into Titus' archaeology classes, then you have a, a somewhat of an idea on the time frame here. But centuries, okay? Abraham uh, lived to a ripe old age, was gathered to his fathers, right? Isaac and Ishmael buried him. And then Isaac lived to a ripe old age and was gathered to his fathers. And, and uh, Jacob buried him. And then Jacob lived out his days. He said they were few and unpleasant. And he was uh, kind of grumbling a bit towards, uh, you know, in the presence of Pharaoh there. But he, uh, he lived out his name and uh, was not buried in Egypt, but Joseph and his brothers carried him up and buried him with his father. So they've been dead centuries by the time it get, get to the life of Moses now, some 400 years later. But he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. It's a present tense. The present tense of his relationship with the patriarchs is key. And Jesus is making a huge point out of this, exegetically and theologically. Key. Um, it is a present, ongoing relationship, which we're going to see. Not I used to be. Not I was Abraham's God back when Abraham was alive. I am Abraham's God. And um, this is where we want to evaluate, uh, as we often do, the... Uh, the of, what is it, what's the impact on of, right? Like the love of Christ. Is that, the, is that the love that Christ has for us? Is it the love we have for Christ? Okay, do we take it subjectively or objectively? Uh, the God of Abraham. Does this mean that uh, Abraham worshipped God and so uh, possessed God as his own God? Or... Does it mean that God possessed Abraham <laughs> and possessed Abraham for his own? Okay. Do you take it objectively or subjectively? Or do you take it both? 
many of these debates are actually answerable both ways, and it just depends on the, the concept and how you want to think about it. Nevertheless, uh, if there is no resurrection, if Abraham is, has gone into the abyss of annihilation of nothingness, right, after death, nothing, then he could not say that I am the God of Abraham. He could say, you know, back in the good old days, I was the God of Abraham. See, I am the God of um, something which no longer exists because there is no resurrection. No, he says, I am the God of Abraham. Abraham still presently exists in his resurrected state. Um, and so we need to understand that. The Lord's making this point. He's, he's making it, I think he's making it um, exegetically and theologically. And so here's what we want to take the time to actually understand. The Abrahamic covenant was promised personally to Abraham. And we'll look at those scriptures. Personally to Isaac. And we'll look at that verse. Personally to Jacob. We'll look at that verse. In addition to their descendants. In addition to their descendants. See, it's not just a general promise to Jewish people. And say, well, you know. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Jewish people, they're the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So as long as God fulfills a promise to Jewish people someday, then he's good. He's making good on his promise. Can't do that. Because these promises are not just general promises to some descendants of Abraham someday. They're personally promised to Abraham and to his descendants. So let's look at the scriptures here. And again, it's a little bit tedious, but it's worth looking at and seeing uh, verse by verse. Starting in Genesis 13, for Abraham we have the most, is Genesis 13, verses 15 and 17, restated again in Genesis 15, 7, restated again in Genesis 17, 8. Three different restatements of this personal promise. It's confirmed to Isaac in Genesis 26, 3. It's reconfirmed to Jacob in Genesis 28, 13. So understand, these covenants are personally given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not just to their descendants, but to them personally. So how does it read? Genesis thirteen fifteen. The uh, And I think it's also, interestingly enough, right on the heels of the separation from Sodom, um, separation from Lot. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him. Now, there is a first telling in Genesis 12. Um, let's peek at that. I didn't put it on the, on the slide. But in Genesis 12, the very first calling, the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So there's the first giving of the, of the covenant to Abraham. And it's interesting, um, the way it's given here, he does not leave his family. He actually takes his father with him as far as Haran. He takes his nephew with him. He takes Sarah with him. John Eichmann even suspects that uh, he, uh, he got married very quickly in order to take Sarah with him, not wanting to leave her behind either. Uh, in any event, it's not until chapter 13 then when he finally separates from Lot. Now, Lot's a believer. Don't get me wrong. He's a believer. But he's not uh, a descendant of Abraham, and he would not be under the Abrahamic covenant uh, directly as we understand it. So over to chapter 13 then, after Lot separates from him, the Lord now says, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward. For all the land which you see, I will give to you and to your descendants forever. Okay. So now there's a personal promise to Abraham. A personal promise. And from this day to the day he departs, he does not literally receive all of this land that he was looking for. In fact, he receives none of it. He purchases a cave and he, he purchases a small part of it. Well, when's he going to get it then? How is God going to fulfill this promise? He can't just 
make good on it by giving it to some descendant someday. Because it's promised to you and your descendants. He has to give this land to Abraham. Because it's personally promised to him. And so clearly this is going to require a resurrection. It's going to require Abraham's ongoing existence beyond his physical life. And if it's going to be yours forever, then uh, physical death for Abraham can't thwart that, can it? Resurrection is inferred. It's expected. And so it's personally. Verse 17, Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Once again, it's restated. It's personal. Not, not only limited to your descendants, but to you. I will give it to you. Now, if God's going to fulfill that promise, Abraham has to still be alive. Spiritually alive in, of course, Sheol at the time Jesus is speaking to the Sadducees. Over to chapter 15 and verse 7. This is where Abraham wants more information. He says, I'm still childless. The heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. You've given no offspring to me. One born in my house is my heir. He's a slave that has been adopted and given heirship. And um, the Lord said, nope, your heir will come from your own body. And uh, look outside, count the stars. So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord. He reckoned, to, reckoned it to him as righteousness. This powerful verse gets quoted in Romans. And we understand the doctrine there. But then verse 7, I am. He said to him, I am Yahweh, the Lord, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. This is your land. You will possess it. It's his purpose. It's personally promised to Abraham, not to his descendants. He's not going to, you know, it's not good enough to just say, well, someday, you know, Jewish people will own this land. Abraham will own this land. It's a personal promise to him. And then finally, in chapter 17 and verse 8. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. And um, verse 7 says, I will establish my covenant between me and you. So it's personal. And your descendants after you through their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings and all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. So it's personal to Abraham as well as his descendants. Likewise, it gets, con it gets confirmed to Isaac in Genesis 26.3. So understand it's important. This is an exegetical point being made, and the Lord's making this point. It's not just a covenant to Abraham's descendants, but it's to Abraham and his descendants personally to Abraham, and then nationally to his descendants. When it gets confirmed, everything is confirmed here to Isaac in Genesis 26. When he was a little bit leery about going down and uh, sojourning, the Lord says, don't worry about it. You can sojourn. Relax. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants... I will give all these lands. Notice again, personally to you, Isaac, to you, Isaac, and your descendants, I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. So this is the, the reconfirming of Abraham's oath is now being personally designated for Isaac. We're excluding Ishmael at this point. We're excluding the seven sons of Keturah. None of the other Abrahamic descendants are properly the objects of the of Abrahamic covenant. Okay, Because it's, it's descended through Isaac, not Ishmael. Never mind what the Muslims tell you because of their Quran. Uh, this is the scripture, and we understand it. And um, verse 4, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and I will give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants all the nation of the earth will be blessed. And so this is the confirmation of the Abrahamic covenant. Same language, same information personally promised to Isaac and to his descendants. Finally, then Jacob in Genesis 28. 
which I really appreciate when we taught this in the life of Jacob. He is actually carnal at this point. (laughs) He has lied. He has deceived. He is leaving the land of promise. He is on his way out of the geographic will of God. And yet, does that thwart the, uh, the Abrahamic covenant? You would think, well, he's obviously he's blowing it here. Okay, It's like, doesn't David break the Davidic covenant when he commits adultery with Bathsheba? No. <laughs> These covenants are unconditional, eternal. Jacob isn't throwing it away because he's uh, fleeing the, the promised land. And uh, there's some other interesting testimonies here. I think it's, uh, well, it's kind of an interesting situation. We, we know the story that uh, how uh, with his mother's assistance, he disguised himself and he went in and he faked being Esau and he, he uh, received the blessing under deceptive Jacob-like uh, processes. And uh, so now he has to flee. And so it makes it the excuse that, oh, well, I, I shouldn't marry any of these Canaanite girls. They're, they're unbelievers. They're bad girls. I need, I, need to go, I need to go to Haran where our godly uh, relatives are and find a good, a, good, a good girl to marry kind of a thing. And, and really what he's doing is just trying to escape before Esau kills him. You know, he's, he's terrified of his brother. And uh, so, I mean, there's just complete ugliness here in this chapter. And yet God's a God of grace. And so Jacob departed from Beersheba, went towards Haran, and came to a certain place, spent the night there, because the sun had set, took one of the stones, put it under his head, lay down in that place. And he had a dream. Behold, a ladder was set in the earth with its top reaching to heaven. Behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, to me, it's stunning that the Sadducees are so glorious that they, they, they magnify the Pentateuch. Here's angels. Well, that's just a dream. You know, they're not real. Um, so behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. So here's same exact terminology and it's a confirmation. Abrahamic covenant gets confirmed, given to Abraham, confirmed to Isaac, reconfirmed to Jacob. So Esau is now excluded. Ishmael is excluded. The seven sons of Keturah are excluded. They're Abrahamic, but they're not under the covenant because they're not. The covenant was reconfirmed with Isaac. Uh, Esau is going to get excluded because uh, it's, it's, it's going to get reconfirmed with Jacob. So he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob is the one who's renamed Israel. When God says, I'm the God of Israel, it means he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of Israel. And so this is how we understand the the Abrahamic covenant as it is related nationally to Israel. It's related nationally to Israel because it's promised personally to Abraham, personally to Isaac, personally to Jacob and their descendants. Okay, so is that making sense? All right, personal and national at the same time, not just national, personal promises in addition to their descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, And you will spread out to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. And you and your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So the the coming promised one will be of Jacob. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. Even though you're presently carnal and fleeing and running, departing the geographic will of God, God's going to be faithful. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. And I will bring you back to this land. Because there is always uh, limits to the permissive will and what he allows us to do. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely Yahweh is in this place, and I did not know it. Well, you should have known it. Okay? You should have known it. So this is where uh, Bethel receives its name, House of God. So the Abrahamic covenant was promised personally. Thirdly, God's promises to the patriarchs, this is point C, as well as their descendants, demands that the patriarchs be resurrected. The physical death cannot end their existence. If it ends their existence, then God did not make good on his promise. God's promises to the patriarchs, as well as their descendants, demands that the patriarchs be resurrected. 
demands that the descendants be resurrected. We can understand this as it pertains to, in fact, the author of Hebrews even spells this out in Hebrews 11 and verse 19. That physical death is not an obstacle to God in fulfilling His promises. If He said it, it's going to happen. I mean, how many generations do we have anyway from Adam to Christ? Christopher memorized the list with like 40. Isn't it 40? There's 40 from Abraham to David and then 40 from David to... Let's see, this, this happens when I get off the top of my head. Why don't I just turn to Matthew chapter 1. There we go. Matthew one seventeen. All the generations from Abraham to David are 14 and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Messiah, 14. So 14, 14, 14. That included some skips, that included some missing names, some omissions in order to get a threefold 14, 14, 14. So that's fine. Anyway, God makes a promise to all these generations. And they're not all on earth at the same time. Okay, you get what? At most three or four, five maybe simultaneously on the earth. How do you make a promise to 40 generations or 100 generations or 1,000 generations like in the fullness of time? Say, well, God made those promises. What does it say in Hebrews 11:19? This is, again, the faith of Abraham who didn't have Scripture, but he understood the power of God. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son, his one-of-a-kind unique son, Monogamous son. It was he to whom it was said, And Isaac, your descendants shall be called. And so he considered that God is able, there's the power, he believed in the power of God, he is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. And so Isaac got to be the type of the death and resurrection of Christ. God's promises to the patriarchs, as well as their descendants, demands that the patriarchs be resurrected. That there has to be a coming day in which all of these believers are going to simultaneously be living upon the earth. Point D. Jesus insisted that the present tense relationship between Abraham and Yahweh revealed a post-mortem, ongoing and living relationship. Revealed a post-mortem, ongoing, and living relationship. Yeah, he died. So what? He's still alive. Remember when he told uh, Martha this, he who live, believes in me will never die. And he who uh, dies, uh, or even if he dies, will live again. That's right. Speaking about spiritual death and physical death. But he who believes in me will never die. There is no spiritual death. Once you are spiritually alive. So Jesus insists on this. He, if he is presently the God of Abraham, Abraham must still be alive. Even though he physically died. This is clearly revealed throughout the Old Testament. And if the Sadducees weren't so resistant to Job or the Psalms or Isaiah or Daniel, they would have had a pretty clear picture of it like the Pharisees did. The Pharisees had no issues with angels or the resurrection or any of these issues because the Pharisees had a whole council approach to Scripture. Job 19.26, Psalm 16.9-11, Isaiah 26.19, Daniel 12.2. And it's strongly implied by the Exodus text Jesus employed. I think more than simply being strongly implied, Jesus insisted on the present tense being his exegesis and, and interpretation of that text. You know, the um, for the crowd that doesn't seem to think that verbal plenary inspiration is important, Jesus certainly did. If If we can legitimately make a conclusion based on the present tense, we need to understand that this is, the, this is the literal way that God has composed His Word. Similarly, uh, when the Apostle Paul makes his argument in Galatians about the difference between seeds and seed, Paul was very insistent that in the Abrahamic covenant that promise was to the seed rather than to the seeds. And he makes a, a powerful case relating to the seed, singular, capital S, being a prophetic message of Jesus Christ as the seed, singular, one and only. 
and not to seeds, plural, or to the descendants in general, or to all Jewish people anywhere. Okay? So there is a significant development in the book of Galatians as it relates to the letter S, the plural between seed and seeds. Okay? So a distinction between singular and plural is vital. A distinction between present tense and past tense is vital. And the Bible uses Scripture this way. The Bible interprets Scripture this way. We need to have the same hermeneutic. The only way you can search the Scriptures to see if these things are so is if you employ the literal hermeneutic. The only way that you can use it is written as your final word of defense is if you use the literal hermeneutic and you accept the inspiration of Scripture. It is God-breathed and profitable. And so our tradition of, of uh, bibliology and hermeneutics and exegesis uh, is fully grounded in how the Lord himself used Scripture. And I hope we can understand that. All right, I've got four minutes left, four passages to read. I think we'll make it. Job 19.26. And how much scripture did Job have? Same as Abraham. None. But he understood resurrection. I believe Abraham understood resurrection. Oh, that my words were written. Well, guess what, Job, they are. <laughs> oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Well, guess what? I'm reading it today. With an iron stylus and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. Better than that, Job. Rock crumbles. The whole earth will be destroyed someday. But your word is forever because it's in the word of God. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. He understands redemption. He understands resurrection. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, I shall see God. Physical death, literal physical resurrection. Whom I myself shall behold, whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. Job had a very clear understanding of redemption and the physical resurrection. Psalm 16, verses 9 through 11. This is a psalm of David. Therefore my heart is glad, my glory rejoices, my flesh also will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. The physical death doesn't end the blessings we have with, with God. Isaiah twenty six nineteen. You know, if we're just Christians in this life and there's no resurrection... The Apostle Paul says, that's pathetic. Yeah, we're of all men most to be pitied. Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Clear resurrection testimony. And finally, Daniel 12, 2 passage that gives us resurrection also gives us angels gives us a lot of things the sadducees didn't like because it's not just believers that are getting resurrected many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt there's a resurrection of life and a resurrection of judgment they will stand before the great white throne. They will confess Jesus Christ as Lord. They will bend the knee to his sovereignty and they'll be cast in the lake of fire for all eternity. So clearly revealed throughout the Old Testament. That's why the Pharisees had no issues with it. Strongly implied by the Exodus text Jesus employed. And when you insist on the present tense relationship between Abraham and Yahweh, then clearly you've got the ongoing and living relationship. Finally, the crowd point five, the crowds found this exegesis and exposition to be an awesome theological conclusion. They were amazed. They were amazed. They had no answer for him. 
And all he was doing was insisting on the present tense of the text, I am. Think about it. Matthew twenty two thirty three, Mark twelve twenty eight, Luke twenty thirty nine. All three of the synoptic accounts record the positive um, wonder, the awesome theological conclusion that the crowds reacted to the Lord's insistence of that development. All right. Well, we'll come back next week and we're going to see some additional challenges. Uh, the Pharisees are going to question the Lord about what's the greatest commandment, and then he's going to have a question back for them. And uh, this back and forth will continue. Remember, we're still dealing with Wednesday of the, of the crucifixion week. And uh, at some point here, he's going to throw them a question they can't answer. They don't want to answer it. And so then he's going to be done. He'll give his final public sermon, uh, which is for us, Matthew 23. And... Uh, yeah, we've got some powerful messages coming up. I'm looking forward to getting to them. Father, thank you for your truth. Once again, we thank you for the privilege we have to study. We thank you for Christ and the example he set. Father, he's teaching us uh, what's the proper hermeneutic to use, uh, what's a valid exegetical methodology, um, how is it that we should uh, speak to our critics, how is it we should answer in, uh, in a conflict or in a debate. And uh, we're, we're gleaning a lot of activities here in this final week as he approaches the cross. So, Father, open our eyes to how you would have for us to speak. Uh, we know there's a time to speak and a time to be silent. So give us the wisdom for, uh, for understanding uh, which option to exercise under what circumstances. In all things, Father, we just want to commit to you our time today and, and uh, all that you've blessed us with. We thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.